invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's on page 993 in these Bibles in the pews. As we uh, come to a second sermon on stewardship, Andy began this uh, last week with, when we looked at the parable of the talents. And today we're going to look at the subject of contentment rather than covetousness. And we're going to look at a couple of passages from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And then next uh, Sunday I plan to bring a sermon from Christ's Sermon on the Mount where he talked about dealing with worry over uh, what we would call finances, provisions, and how people were so concerned about how they were going to take care of themselves, and he, he gives some instructions about that. So that's the plan for next Sunday morning. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who was a pastor in the ancient and great city of Ephesus, a large metropolitan area. It would have had every kind of uh, financial class and background and nationality there. And so he's a a pastor in a large city, and some false teachers had come into the had come into the church, and they were teaching bad theology. And I'm going to begin reading there in the middle of verse two, uh, and down to verse ten, and then we'll drop down to a later part in the chapter. Hear God's word. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now drop down to verse 17, if you will. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know what it is to have little or lot, and each brings responsibilities that often are beyond our ability to meet. We pray for softened hearts, sensitive consciences by your Holy Spirit into this area of dealing with material items and money. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, John Krakauer wrote a book 
which was later made into a movie by Sean Penn entitled Into the Wild. And if you read that or saw the movie, you know it's the true but tragic story of Christopher McCandless, who was a young man from a well-to-do family who graduated from Emory University. And immediately after graduating with honors from Emory, he changed his name, he gave the entire balance of $24,000 of a savings account he had to charity, he abandoned his car, he burned all the cash in his wallet, and then he invented a new life for himself. And he began taking up residence at what Krakauer called the ragged margin of society. He wandered across North America in search of meaning and transcendent experience. He ultimately hitchhiked to Alaska, and he walked alone into the wilderness north of Mount McKinley. And uh, four months after he entered that area, his dead body was found by a group of moose hunters. And John Krakauer says that he wrote this book in an attempt to understand and to explain the thinking which went into Chris McCandless's bizarre course of action. And one of the many motives which drove him apparently to drop out of society was the personal struggle with how do humans relate to the material world. And he was convinced, and he's not alone in this today, and some religions teach this, he was convinced that money and wealth prevent us from experiencing life as it should be lived. And although I personally think he was confused and mistaken in his conclusions, people in general and Christians all through history have tried and grappled with the balance between using material things in life and not being what you'd call materialistic, of using material things to accomplish good without living for those material things. If you've ever grappled with that, I think some of the words here of the Apostle Paul that we have to Timothy can help. I mentioned that they're false teachers. That's the context of this. They had entered into the church at Ephesus, and they are, as he says here, teaching unsound words. If anyone, it says in verse 3, teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the basic problem of all bad theology, of all bad teaching. In one way or another, it does not adhere to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And another word for sound is healthy. It's not healthy. It doesn't help people. And that's why he goes into that long list of what it produced with envy and dissensions and so forth. That was coming about from what was being taught. And he says, Paul says to Timothy, that the bottom line is they are saying godliness is a means of gain, of financial gain. In other words, they were in it for the money. Greed has always been a danger in any church. This was true in the Middle Ages with the sale of indulgences. But it continues today, and on a somewhat regular basis, scandal occurs in some churches, and I'm, it's not right, we shouldn't expect that, but let's not be so surprised when it occurs. Now, the next several verses, beginning in verse 3, deal with the topic I think you and I need today, and that's the topic of contentment. 
What does it mean to be content? And let me, before I go any further, say some people react against the notion of contentment as though contentment is a bad thing if it means that it stops human progress. In other words, let's say you see uh, a disease that could be cured or you see a, a need that could be met or you have an idea of an invention that could benefit humanity. And they say, well, if you're content, you won't have any ambition. You won't have any drive. And things will not be accomplished. We have great roads and great buildings and progress and civilization because people were not content. It's not talking about the same thing. We can have godly ambition. We can do our work heartily for the Lord. We can use the creative powers God has given us. And that's not the same as not being content. Let me try and explain what I mean by that. He addresses two groups of people in the church. Some are poor and some are wealthy. So he divides the church into these two. And he says, Timothy, I want you to give specific instruction first to the poor. And then in verses 17 and 19 that we read at the end, then I want you to give some instruction to the wealthy, to the rich as well. So first to the poor in verses 6 through 10. He goes back and, and says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He takes the thing that he had condemned the false teachers and said, well, depending on how you look at it, uh, godliness can be for gain if it is with contentment. But if what kind of gain is he talking about? He's not talking about making more money. He's not talking about financial gain. He's talking about spiritual gain if you add contentment with it. And Paul had learned that contentment does not rely on external things. He said in Philippians, I've learned, that's important, it didn't happen automatically, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So Paul says, I did not find this within myself, I learned it, and I learned it through the power of Christ. So if you and I are to experience genuine contentment, as described here, which is coming at it from a material standpoint, it will not be because we just resolve or say, I'm going to be stronger, I'm going to set my mind that I'm going to be content. We will only find that by the sufficiency of Christ, of knowing him and finding our contentment in him. That's why godliness plus contentment is great spiritual gain. So now these words are to the poor, and he's going to divide them now into two, two groups those that are contented, and those who are covetous. The contented poor in verses 7 and 8. But for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now he's addressing a group of people who are not destitute. This is important. What do you mean by that? Well, destitute people have nothing. These are people leaving war-torn areas or or where there's been famine, and they don't have food, they don't have clothes, they don't have shelter of any sort, they have nothing. Nowhere will you find the Bible commending that kind of state and say, be content with that. Sometimes on the news we see people like that, and they are destitute. They need the basics. We all need the basics of food, clothing, and shelter. But Paul is saying, that is enough. If I have that much, I can be content. 
So how does he urge these poor people to be content? Well, verse 7, he reminds them of just a common observation that's been true all through history, and it's true now. We brought nothing into this world, and we're carrying nothing out. We're going out the way we came in. Now, my wife, Barbara, had five C-sections. And I was in the uh, delivery room for four of those, seated at the safe by her head on the curtain. I was not where I could see the other stuff that would have caused me to pass out, I think. Anyway, I never remember hearing the medical staff, the nurses and doctors on the other side of the curtain, say, well, will you look at here? This little boy has a $100 bill in his hand that he brought out. They look at these possessions that this one was born with. No, of course not. I mean, it's such a kind of, it's, it's silly. We know. We come into the world with nothing. And we leave with nothing. Yes, I am aware of the tattoo parlor that has a slogan that says, you can take it with you. That's not what we're talking about. So in respect to material possessions, we leave as we came. He, but he just reminds him of that basic principle. And he's talking now to the poor. You're going to go out the way you came in. So we see from the New Testament that possessions, in a sense, are like luggage. That we're on a trip. We are headed toward a destination, and the luggage is temporary, and possessions are not the stuff of eternity. Anything we have, we will leave here. A wise person will travel light, and Jesus commanded us not to store up treasures for ourselves on earth. So then what should be our attitude toward material things? Verse 8, Paul replies, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. He's talking now to the poor. Luxuries are not essential, he's saying to them and to us, but necessities are. The necessities of food and clothing are important. So it could be interpreted... Shelter, food, clothing, and shelter. These are saying uh, that this is essential. But he's not saying that's the maximum anyone should have. But it is the minimum by which a person could be content. Are y'all with me? I feel like I'm kind of not being clear. Uh, Imagine that. (laughs) He's not saying that's the maximum, is food, clothing, and shelter. But it's, it's enough. If you've got that, you should learn to be content at that point. Okay, got that. Now next. Now he deals with the poor who are covetous. Now he's talking to the covetous poor in verses 9 and 10. They are people who are poor, but one, verse 9 says, they want to be rich. And verse 10 says, they are motivated by the love of money. So anyone that thinks a poor person is uh, more godly than a person who has a lot they may be far more covetous as a poor person than a wealthy person. We can be poor or wealthy and still be in sin with our attitudes. Neither state guarantees anything. But the Old Testament is filled with warnings about covetousness. You say, what is covetousness? It's it's just desiring more that we have, always wanting more. I think they were always wanting more. But there's a place to say, hey, the car needs to be replaced. Is that covetousness? No, it could be if you're buying it or for some reason or other, if you think you're, you're standing before God or your human dignity and value is found in some possession. But if from the standpoint of saying, hey, there's a need here, I need to 
repair this or replace this, that's not the same as covetousness. It's always wanting more. So the Old Testament warns about covetousness. It says money is addictive. Whoever loves it will never have enough of it. We're told not to be impressed by the wealthy, but to remember they will leave with nothing just like we will. Old Testament says one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. And we have an example there in Proverbs where a person prayed to be given neither poverty nor riches, that both had liabilities with them. Jesus said, beware of greed, and he reminded us that life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. And so Paul says in verse 9, people who want to get rich fall. Well, fall into what? They fall into temptation and a trap. They lead themselves into temptation. Here's the thing about being wealthy in our culture, unlike other areas of temptation. Uh, if, do you know how long it takes to become addicted to crack cocaine? Seven minutes. One time. Now, what if, what if someone said, here, let me give you this, and it'll wreck your life. It's going to change you for the worse and affect your family and friends and all your relationships in seven minutes. And you would say, I'm not touching that. Who in their right mind would make a choice like that? Well, we said, hey, here's a temptation. Here's a temptation, some of the Ten Commandments, to steal something. Oh, by the way, if you get caught, you're going to jail. And your reputation is going to be ruined. You'll probably never be hired again in the area you're trained. And you would say, I I'm... You see the liabilities, adultery, what, the, the ramifications of that, or on and on and on. You know, let's just take some areas of temptation where if we stop and think, we say, I don't want to destroy myself. Even if you don't fear God, you might say, I'm not going down that path. I see where it will lead. But when we're offered wealth, I don't think we see any liability with it overall. But Paul does. And he warns that those who desire to be wealthy fall into temptation. And a snare, a snare is, is, is meant to be unseen, and it snares the animal. They thought it was safe, but it wasn't. And what are some of the things then that come, what are the temptations that come with wealth? Well, covetous people fall into many foolish and harmful desires, like greed, the more you have, the more you want. And Paul says further desires are foolish and harmful. They bring bondage, not freedom. And the third and the final stage in the downfall of the covetous, their wrong desires plunge them into ruin and destruction. Their life can, be, can revolve around these things. And then Christ said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, to have everything, and yet lose his soul? And then Paul quotes what was probably a current proverb of his day. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's a root of all kinds of evil. What kinds of evil come from, from the love of money? Well, we look at places in the Bible. Greed leads to selfishness, cheating, fraud, perjury, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, violence, murder, and on and on. What drives that? Greed. The love of money. 
I mentioned to you uh, <laughs> I'm back sorry I mentioned this biography that I left over there by mistake it, it's, it's rare, it's a missionary biography I know you can't read it from where you are John G. Patton, P-A-T-O-N some people pronounce it Peyton he was from Scotland in the 1800s the latter, mid to later 1800s he and his wife uh, went from Scotland to what was called the New Hebrides Islands. They are approximately halfway between Hawaii and Australia. Today, they're called Vanuatu. And due to natural disasters there, hurricanes and so forth over the past few years, every once in a while they pop up in the news. Well, he was the first missionary that lived there. The first missionaries were two fellows from, from England that uh, in 1848 uh, went there and were promptly killed, cooked, and eaten inside of the, church, the ship. Now, how would you like to be the second person in? But he and his wife and their child, and um, the wife and child both died of diseases within the first two months he was there. And he spent the major part of his adult life there ministering to these people in this chain of islands, and saw basically, basically about 90% of the population converted to Christianity. A Presbyterian missionary. And so I, I recommended this book, as I'm doing again. One, it's a rare autobiography. Many missionary, there are many missionary biographies, and sometimes they kind of glamorize the person. This is a first-hand account. If you want to learn about family, if you want to learn some about marriage, if you want to learn about boldness for the gospel and just sheer excitement, if you want to make a movie of a missionary's life, this one ought to be the one. This is the book. Uh, and I've had some of you tell me that it's, it's one of the most, it's a book that's affected you uh, greatly. But on, I won't read it, but on page 150, he tells about after he had been there for years and a number of the, the native people had been converted, but not all, and they, there were many warring factions on the islands, that what he, those he came to dread the most were the European trade ships. And they would come and often, here's an example, he tells about going down to the beach and a, she, a ship had arrived and one of the leaders of the ship came ashore and said, we've, we've found a way that we can get what we need, which was sandalwood, which was a very rare wood on these islands, and they wanted to come and take it. So and, and agreed and make a lot of money. And, and Patton said to him, you don't intend to fire on these people, do you, with their cannons and their, their muskets? They said, no, we've got something better. And they brought four people with measles. He said, we're putting them out there. And within a few months, almost 80% of the population was dead. And that's exactly what they intended to happen. And I was thinking, what drove that? Greed. Greed drove it. Uh, to introduce measles into cities. So we know so many of those islands, we talk, look back and say, they died of diseases. In many cases, it was intentional. It was intentional because the traders wanted the material on the, on the islands, in this case, sandalwood. So 
Now back to today, Paul chooses to focus on two particular evils which spring from covetousness. First, some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith, he says. Christ said, it is not possible to pursue truth and money, God and mammon, at the same time. It can't, one's going to be the driving force of your life, the major driving force of your life, but it can't be both. Second, he says, they pierce themselves with many griefs or pangs. Perhaps he's mentioning the grief of a hardened conscience or finding that what I thought would satisfy me doesn't satisfy me and ultimately final despair. So in the final word to the poor, Paul is not for poverty and against wealth. He is for contentment and against covetousness. You got me? He's not for poverty and against wealth. He is for contentment, whether you're poor or wealthy, and against covetousness, whether you're poor or wealthy. Now, the other group. Is that right? 12, 16? Quickly, the other group. Verses 17 through 19. Negative instructions. First, the dangers of being rich. The first danger, he says in verse 17, is pride. There's a tendency for wealth, or if we have things, to be prideful about it. It's one of the side, side effects that comes with wealth is, is that wealthy people can feel prideful and self-important and look down on others. The second danger is a false sense of security. He says in verse 17, they set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Anybody been watching the stock market the past two weeks? It's been a roller coaster. It's all uncertain. No one knows from day to day, and as one person said, there have been many people who've gone to bed rich and waked up poor. So the two dangers to which wealthy are exposed are false pride and false security, thinking because I've got enough, then everything's fine. I'm safe. Uh, life has meaning. And he says that's just, that's just an illusion. So what are the positive instructions? In verses 18 and 19, the wealthy should have a sense of responsibility. They are to do rich, to do good, to be rich in good works. And second, they need a sense of proportion, that they're laying up treasure for themselves in heaven. Okay, let me conclude with this. Today in America, it, it, we probably the most popular gospel message is called the prosperity gospel. It's not the gospel at all, but the largest church in America preaches it, and that is that if, if you're in God's will, then he wants you wealthy and he wants you healthy. That's his will for you, and that's your right as a child of the king. They don't say healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's usually just healthy and wealthy. He wants those two. So if we've got this extreme of the prosperity gospel, then some think, well, you can't really be a, a Christian unless, unless you pretty much are detached from the things of the world. But the gospel doesn't teach others because it says that we find our true meaning in Christ Jesus himself, not our material status of how much we have. Dick Lucas is an Anglican pastor, Bible teacher. He's been around for decades and is a real instrument of God. He preached here one Sunday night many years ago. We had, he was passing through town, and I mean, we, we had the opportunity to hear Dick Lucas preach. But he tells a story of a man uh, he met who went to church in probably one of the most prosperous counties in England. 
And among other things, the minister told him, this man who went to visit this church in this very wealthy area, the minister told this man that if he trusted Christ, God would give him a Jaguar automobile. And the trouble was, in what perplexed this man, he already owned a Jaguar. So he went to a different church down the road, and he walked up to the minister, and it, perhaps it was Dick Lucas. He may not have used himself. He walked up to the minister and said, I went to such and such a church, and they told me that God wants me to have a Jaguar. But you see, I already have a Jaguar, and my life is still empty and meaningless. Doesn't Christianity have anything more to offer me than a car? Another car. And thankfully, this was a pastor who could tell him that, yes, Christianity does offer more. It offers Jesus Christ, a relationship with God, not gold. And anyone who comes to God through Jesus Christ finds meaning, purpose, joy, and even satisfaction in life. Let's pray together. Our Father, you've, you've made us to be people that need things. We need food, clothing, and shelter, and, and other things. We need medical care, and protection, and police, and fire departments. And, and yet we, our sinful hearts can lead us to worship those things that rather than than using them to to serve you and to help others. So we pray for help in our own particular situations, some here that are very young, dependent on parents, some in retirement, uh, some in maybe just lost a job, uh, some don't know where the next um, rent check is coming from, uh, some have piles of money and perhaps lacking discernment or wanting discernment as to how to use it for the best way and we just pray for guidance. We pray we'd heed your words that, and recognize that Christians through the ages have wrestled with this. Most of all, we ask, though, that our hope and trust would not be in things but in Christ himself and that we recognize that we came into this world with nothing and we'll go out with nothing. And may we go out, prepare to meet you, prepare to hear your words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord that Christ has gone to prepare a place for us and he will come and take us to be with him where we'll be forever. And we pray in his name. Amen.